Ladies and gentlemen, this is the Salty Pastor Podcast, a podcast designed for those who want to know the truth for themselves. They don't want to be told what to believe. They want to discover the power of their own faith by digging a little deeper and understanding what Jesus said and taught. Our basic schedule is Tuesday is an in-depth Bible study of the passage we will be focusing on in the coming Sunday. Mm -hmm. Today, we'll be digging into the implications of these biblical principles in today's world. Let's welcome our very own salty pastor, Dr. Douglas Peak. Now, Pastor Foothills is beginning a new study uh, for the Christmas season. Tell us about this new series for the month of December. Well, it's good to be here with all of you, especially you listening. I hope you understand that uh, I'm simply a vessel, what I think is of no consequence. <laughs> what Jesus thinks, though, is of the utmost consequence. And our new series is Jesus is King. And we really want to dig into this notion that Jesus and Jesus alone has the authority and the power to heal the world. And so we find true love, true justice, true honor, all true virtue in Christ and Christ alone. Now, the purpose of this podcast is to help you grow to maturity. Uh, and believe me, you really want maturity because Jesus calls you to maturity. He encourages you to maturity. He empowers you to maturity and his divine presence grows you to maturity. It sort of reminds me of the verse um, Paul wrote in Philippians, for I am confident of this very thing that he who begins a good work among you will complete it by the day of Christ Jesus. Yeah, he is begun a work in us and he's going to keep doing it. Right. And what that is, is he's maturing us. So that's the goal. And in Ephesians chapter four, Paul says that when you are mature, you are no longer tossed here and there by every wind of teaching. Uh, right now, you are in a hurricane of teaching in our society. We are inundated with all kinds of principles, ideas, political theories, corporate or competing values. And so maturity is no longer an option. And most importantly, it's not an option for your children. Uh, before you lived in a culture, maybe the one you grew up in, if you have young children, where the society around you kind of supported the basic virtues that you were trying to develop within your children. But today, our public educational system, the universities, media, social media in particular, Hollywood, news organizations, and so forth, are all trying to develop within children virtues that are antithetical to your relationship with Jesus Christ, in many ways antithetical to your core values. Now, they're not the surface Virtues like, oh, be nice to people, accept people, be tolerant. That's not what we're talking about. What they're doing is they're attacking the very definition of what it means to be a human being. And that's where the real danger lies. And that's where our core values and our relationship with Christ are being challenged the most. Now, what exactly do you mean by that statement? Well, like I said, it's not a surfacey thing. It, you really have to dig down. And most of us, because we're just living life and, you know, going you about might, our days. you're going about your day. You're just cruising. You're trying to figure out, you know, how do I get supper on the table? Uh, how do I get my kids to have an education? How, you know, do I manage my retirement? How do I, you know, get the house or fix the house? I mean, we're just all kind of living day to day 
life. But what we can never forget is that the life that we have lived and our parents and our grandparents lived that developed this nation into the greatest nation in the history of the world, which that's not an opinion. That's a fact that has been verified over and over again. And that is all of these things grew in the seedbed, the fertile soil of something. And what is happening right now is that that soil is being changed. And so the real question is, is can what has grown continue to grow when you change the soil? And obviously, I believe emphatically, no, that can't happen. So it's important to note that this is not a political thing going on. This is not a Republican or Democrat issue. This is why we don't tell you who to vote for as a church. Because the battle that is being waged is far deeper, more stronger than anyone can ever imagine. Because it's about the soil. And ultimately it results from what the Bible calls the spirit of this age. And you hear about this often in the New Testament, about the spirit of this age. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 talks about the spirit of delusion that goes out from people who have rejected God and rejected the the truth and i think that spirit of delusion is really in this you know battle this deep battle over the soil now it crops up in politics okay but what you're seeing is the symptom or the end result of this underlying change but if so therefore if you only look at it through a political lens then you're going to miss the true nature of what's going on and that's really important to understand because in the end politics is simply a reflection of the cultural battle that's going on and in my opinion all cultural battles are spiritual in nature and my strongest evidence for this is you and myself in other words the spiritual battle that i experience every day is waged actually with in myself and i'm sure that you who are listening it's the same for you as well you see, my desire to love Jesus, to know him more, to grow stronger, more courageous in my faith is waging war against another part of me that is enticed and tempted, encouraged to like things and do things that are a direct contradiction to my relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't think this is so hard to grasp. I, I'm at a point in my life where what I eat is important because it impacts my mood. It impacts my health in a dramatic way but every day i get up and think i need to start this day with some donuts <laughs> i don't know that's just man it's like boy don't be so good but I, I just can't do that so i if i'm having a battle with myself over just what i eat for breakfast then just imagine the spiritual battle in me that is happening so uh that's why i say all cultural battles are spiritual in nature well, and I see this this spiritual warfare happening in myself as well at times. I mean, the good news is that we have a king who has the power to win any battle, especially mm -hmm. this battle. Especially this battle, yeah. And Jesus is king, and that's the point of this new series right now. And it simply means that since he is God, he is king, and he became man on our behalf. Therefore, as God and as a human perspective he has the power and the authority to define reality of what it means to be a human being 
Well, and I think that's why the incarnation is so important because mm-hmm. it's really the foundation of Jesus to be able to define reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's really the 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 proof. You see, it's like okay, he understands from both sides what true reality uh, is, and as I've said before, we're in a postmodern way of thinking and what postmodernism does at its core is it says okay we're going to take all the soil that all this stuff that has grown out of you know the greatest economy the highest standard of living the greatest technological advancements the 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 most politically just and equal uh, nation in the history of the world uh the most free liberty all you know patriot all of these things have grown up out of this soil and what postmodernism wants to do is say that soil isn't any good and we want to get rid of it and we want to put new soil in there so because god became man he has the authority to divine reality and that's where we understand that you can't change the soil and that's like you said why the incarnation is so important and because this postmodern way of thinking has become so prevalent when jesus says i am the way the truth and the life postmodernism says well there is no truth there is no way and there is no life so uh, where else does jesus define reality that's in direct opposition of how our, our postmodern world is defining our reality well i think uh politically it does jesus is not an anarchist in any way shape or form he says when it comes to taxes render under caesar what is caesar's paul states the role of government uh in romans is to punish evil and reward righteousness however it is a perspective that though government is necessary it can never address the needs of the human soul and to bring peace and that's why jesus christ said i came Mm. to bring you peace and so the world believes in in direct opposition to this now postmodernism says well we can create a political utopia which the just the basic logic of that we can make everything perfect that's what they say that's what they say everything can be perfect and so government is the answer and so what we see t- today is a worshiping of government and so much so that the, the, the verbiage around how we elect a president takes on religious overtones. Yeah, it's like, you know, you know so-and-so is the Messiah for yeah. our party. And they're going to the one we've been waiting us. for. Yeah, I mean, it's, oh my gosh. Yeah. And it's on both sides. It's yeah, not one it, side or the other. It is, everybody. yeah. And so now there's people who, who advocate strongly for their political positions you know, which is fine. You know, that's participating in the in, in the process, which I, I'm all, I, I really strongly encourage that. But when the discussion takes on religious overtones from a spiritual nature, then what that tells me is that is that some people in our culture, particularly secular humanists and atheists and so forth, they they worship government. Right. And and then there's a big group of people who are saying, yeah, well, we don't worship government at all and we want to limit its influence. And th- those things make that that battle is shows the dichotomy of how they're wanting to change out the soil of where all this uh, grew, because when you believe that the government is the answer and you worship the government, there is no end to your political ambition. And if anybody stands in your way, they are only doing so because they hate progress or they hate utopia. Right. Right. And so if you hate utopia, you have to be evil 
There's something defective with you. And so that's where we see this battle crop up in politics. I see this this uh, Jesus is king and the way he defines reality and it comes into conflict with the uh, 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 the world in which we live today by how we perceive what it means to be a human being. Now, Jesus defines what it means to be a human being by putting all human beings in one category. So Jesus only has really basically, you could say one overall category and then one subcategory. So maybe one and a half categories at the most. Right. But basically, Jesus says that all human beings are created in the image of God, but they're tainted by sin. And Christ came to free us from the effect of sin and restore us back to God. So all human beings are created in the image of God. God is patient and loving towards all human beings, right? However, uh, when we must come to him in faith and that's when we receive redemption and the righteousness of Christ is now bestowed upon us. So now we walk as redeemed people. And so that's really important to, to understand as well. Uh, another postmodern political theory, though, challenges this notion. What it basically says is that the world is built on structures or, or or social tribes is basically what they say. And what they do is you're a part of your tribe based on how you look. So it's like the, the least common denominator is how right. we look, right? And so it's how you look. Uh, and all your problems in life are a result of another tribe mistreating you. So... I can't think of a more divisive way to approach humanity than any other else. It's so tribal and it balkanizes people, meaning it separates everybody and pits them against each other. To me, that seems like Satan's playground right, right. there. You know, um, another place where this comes up is Jesus teaches that we are all created in his image, the image of himself, male and female. We are created in his image. But today the world believes that gender, male and female, is a social construct and that your biology has nothing to do with who you are. And so what happens is this is a denigration of maleness and it's a denigration of femaleness. So masculinity, femininity, these things are irrelevant. And so um, there's a direct contradiction there between these worldviews. Jesus defines reality one way, our world defines it in another. So how is it that these ideas have gained such a powerful foothold in our society when our society was so overwhelmingly influenced mm -hmm. by the Judeo-Christian definition of reality on in its founding? Well, I, I just don't think I can... Uh, understate the effect of the Frankfurt School of Social Theory and its influence in modern-day university campuses. Uh, it's really powerful through the philosophy departments and then a lot of other sub-universities uh, and schools of thought within all of the major universities. There has been two entire generations that have been raised and taught to buy into this philosophy and then you see now the influence of social media where what is now between the universities in our 
government agencies in our public school system and in social media they're kind of pulling all these elements together to create what is commonly known as a cultural hegemony so and that's we've talked about that before that's like everybody having being led by the um it's there it's on the tip of your tongue i always i also uh i always also get it confused with what's the everything's the same hum hum homogeny yeah homogeny homogeny is the one i always think of first homogenous yeah hegemony comes from the latin which means to lead or to guide right and so basically what it means is a hegemony is we want to have a singular cultural control it comes from the italian communist uh antonio gramsci he he was a part of the Frankfurt School of Theory, and he really influenced it. But he didn't approach it from a political social theory. What he talked about was you need a cultural hegemony. And that is is that the goal is to force cultural standards and norms uh, on everyone and remove anything that contradicts or challenges these norms through either shaming, abuse, loss of employment, loss of your house, loss of anything and everything. And so it's 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 considered an approach of absolute destruction. And in communist countries, we saw this where it was very predominant. If you know, uh, uh Dostoevsky's uh uh The Gulag Archipelago and there's a lot of things document all this and how it actually worked. And so it wasn't that the government the Russian Communist Party came in and suppressed people. What it ended up doing is the P- the Russians themselves started to uh, suppress one another out of fear of being found out and shamed and arrested and sent to a gulag. And I told the story before, but I'll tell it again. But uh, uh, I think it was Stalin and he had a daughter or son or somebody like that who did a little piano concerto and all these people came to see it. Right. And right. so at the end they stood up and it, it, it was just this mediocre thing, but they stood up. People started clapping and it, the clapping went on for 15 minutes and then it went on for 30 minutes. And I mean, you're clapping for this ridiculous thing after 30 seconds everybody knows this is a joke but everybody kept clapping because nobody wanted to be the first one to stop right so after about 45 minutes to an hour of clapping someone finally just had enough of this absurdity they stopped clapping and they sat down then everybody immediately stopped and sat down so what happened they arrested that guy and sent him to a gulag Mm. so that's what's happening today and that is is that is that this cultural hegemony is trying to impose on particularly our young people who are very susceptible to it, these cultural norms and standards. And one of them is, is that if you don't agree with me, then you hate me, right? Or you're a hater. And so that is really powerful and influential in that regard. So the goal is to force cultural standards and norms by removing anything that contradicts socially ostracizing anybody who doesn't toe the party line and rejecting any type of challenge to what is being everybody believes is being accepted as normative so how does jesus being the king challenge this ideology 
Well, I think first and foremost, Jesus is the definer of all reality, both in this life and the next. Consequently, we have to believe what Jesus says about us before we believe what the world is trying to tell us. And that's why Paul says grow to maturity, because you don't want to be tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine or every wind of teaching, because that is not where you want to be lost on the sea in a storm. So I think that what we have to realize is that this is the admonition of Christ, that when you continue to define reality of what it means to be a human being based on his perspective, you're going to be persecuted. Case in point, the church is in direct opposition to a cultural hegemony. Therefore, it must be undermined at all costs. Now, uh, over the last probably 40 years, 50 years, is that the church in America has not grown as a percent of the total population. So even as the population was going up, that line stayed fairly flat. And so what people who are antagonistic towards the church do is say, well, the church is, you know, losing ground and fewer and fewer people believe. Well, actually, statistically, that's a lie. What the truth is, is that people are leaving the main line uh, denomination churches, but uh, conservative churches that hold to the scriptural teachings of Jesus, they're holding just fine and growing a little bit. But the overall population of America is growing fast, and a lot of it through immigration from all of these other countries and so forth. And uh, so they don't identify. And so what's happening is it seems like the percent of the total population Christianity is waning, but it's not due to the fact that these people trying to push a cultural hegemony are saying. So they're misinterpreting the data and they do it intentionally because what they're trying to do is force everybody to realize, oh, that thing's dead. Don't believe it anymore. You guys are losing. You know, you're losing, losing, losing. Um, now, there are two reasons why the church has not gained ground in American society and the cultural war has shifted over to this other side. Um, and the first one is this, is that in the 80s, the church got really involved in politics because it believed that, hey, the way we're going to win the cultural war is through power, right? Well, what they did is, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to get power and then we're going to try to impose morality. So there were two flaws in that reasoning, in my opinion. The first one is, is culture cannot be won through power, only through influence. So even a cultural hegemony in its attempt is going to ultimately fail because it violates that inner thing inside of you that says, I, you know, people can't tell me what to think. It's powerful at first, but eventually it collapses. Soviet Union is another perfect example. It right. just eventually mm -hmm. collapses. Well, the, the, so, but the other flaw in their reasoning was this, is that it, it, the culture war is a war of morals, and it's not. See, morals are just the outflow of the real spiritual battle. It's much deeper than that, and that is how do we define reality. And so the, the second, though, reason why the church hasn't gained ground as much or as fast as possible, I guess, is because the influences of our culture have attacked the church directly. They constantly attack the church. They attack it uh, based on its morals, and they try to in, invert it. You know, oh, you guys don't accept certain behaviors, so you hate these people. 
you know, you're bigots and you hate, you're filled with hate. Um, case in point is uh, Howard Dean, who ran for president. Howard Dean, who is head of the Democratic National Committee, and I'm trying to make a political statement here about all Democrats. I'm not trying to do that. I'm just trying to say is that you have a he was a leader politically. Okay. And he actually tweeted out that Christianity is a religion of hate. So he tweeted that. So it's all about hate. Hillary Clinton, another cultural leader, talked about that the reason why people don't want to associate with Christianity because it's so filled with intolerance and hate. And so... But what's really fascinating is if you were to get her in a corner or Bill Clinton in a corner, they would say, oh, we're Christians. So I, I don't I don't really get that. I don't, right. I don't really understand that. My point is not trying to say Democrats are bad. Please don't misinterpret what I'm saying. I'm not trying to make a political statement. What I'm trying to say is that people who are powerful leaders on our culture are making these statements. Mm. OK. And why do they make these statements? They, the, if you're in politics, you don't make statements because you're just thinking, oh, I want to make this statement and see how people feel. You're reflecting what you're hearing from your group of people that you feel you're representing. And so what politicians do is they listen to the people that they're trying to represent, right? And then they try to encapsulate or capture their values, and then they give words uh, you know, form to what all of their constituents constituency is thinking, right? So when political leaders are tweeting and saying these things pu- publicly, they're they are uh, representing large swaths of how people think, and a lot of those people have been trained to think that way in our universities. So, what I think is really important is that the church is being attacked directly. Uh, and pushed to the side because in a cultural hegemony, they don't want that. That's That was the first thing that the Bolshevik Revolution got rid of was the church, right? In China today, the number one persecuted group in China are religious people. First of all, there are the Muslim Uyghurs, and then Christianity is horrendously prosecuted or persecuted, excuse me, in China right now. And so the number one group of people persecuted globally by all standards, this comes out of the United Nations, is Christians across the board. And so everybody is attacking the church, attacking Christianity. And and I think the reason why is because it's in direct opposition to any attempt to establish a cultural hegemony, right? The second thing is, is that this ideology always uses a crisis, a flashpoint in social unrest to advance its dominance. And I think Jesus and the way he defines reality is that when there is a crisis, when there is a flashpoint, when there is social unrest, Jesus says, well, what we should probably do is pray about it and fast over it and seek peace. Pray for our enemies and those who persecute you. Well, this is in direct opposition to those who want a cultural hegemony because they want a flashpoint. You know what I'm saying? They want social unrest because that opens the door for them to come in and institute changes. You know, what's really frightening to me is uh, these uh, postmodern neo-Marxists have been writing extensively over uh, during the pandemic. And uh, if you get outside of the political and the, just what you hear on the news media and you get into what's actually being 
written and bantered around in in uh, peer-reviewed articles and these types of things. Uh, most of them are academic journals, which are boring as not to read, <laughs> by the way. But I will do that for all of you to save you from having to do it ourselves. Having to do it. And what they're talking about over and over again is that what the pandemic does is it allows them a crisis that's big enough to come in and impose all kinds of changes that they want. Because what they say is that when people are fearful, they're much more open to change. So it doesn't matter what the change is, even if it doesn't have anything to do with the pandemic. If you can link the two through words, then you can usually implement whatever you want. Because when people are scared to death, they're, they're willing to try anything, right? So, so there, that's going on. And I think what's really fascinating is... Uh, the mayor of Louisville, Kentucky, just came out and said yesterday that he is declaring racism as a pandemic. And so we we need to fight it just like we're fighting a pandemic. The difference is, is that a pandemic is an actual biological thing. And so it's like, OK, we can test to see whether people have it or not. Well, how do you test for racism and how do you define what racism really is in my definition of racism i am 100 percent behind anybody who wants to stop racism but in his definition of racism well what does that exactly mean right. i remember the old salem witch trials and that was basically we would call anybody a witch we wanted to get rid of and didn't like right and that was tremendously unjust spanish inquisition is another perfect example of injustice uh that was tried to be marketed as something just so a cultural hegemony is being attempted to be imposed it's it's been attempting to be imposed over democrats and republicans in the political realm it's attempting to be imposed upon uh, all of our corporations right now and a lot of corporations are kowtowing to it they're, they're attempting to do it on social media and that is they just kick you off social media if you post any contrarian view to something they and so this is happening over and over and the education system is the key to achieving these ends education is the key and i think that's where we really need to be careful and everybody needs as Christians to pray about it's our responsibility to educate our kids in reading, writing, and arithmetic, but also in the ultimate reality. And that is what in the world does it mean to actually be a human being? So since Christmas is all about hope and we're celebrating the king being born, what is your perspective on how this will go? Well, I think it's really interesting because... I believe that I have been more hopeful about the power of the gospel of Christ in the last year than I've been in years prior. I mean, I'm just really amazed at how so many people are really turning to God because they realize how thirsty and dry their souls are. And they're, they're realizing that, that uh, in the past, America was a two-party system, you know, and it was Democrats and Republicans, and they basically all had the same worldview, and they kind of argued about how to be nicer or more productive was basically it, and it went back and forth and back and forth. Right. But in, the Frankfurt School of Social Theory is brought into a whole other group that's highly influential, and it's infected our media and our universities, and these people are not liberal, and these people are not conservative. 
Right? These people are leftists and they are postmodern neo-Marxists. And let me tell you something. Uh, when those people get power, you're going to see the exact same outcome that you saw at the Bolshevik Revolution, the Socialist Democratic Party, also known as the Nazi Party that took over Germany. You're going to see the same thing of the Khmer Rouge. You're going to see the same thing as Mao Zedong and the Cultural Revolution. And it's not going to be pretty if these people gain power. And they're trying to do it through the establishment of a cultural hegemony. So the best thing to do is to get serious about your faith. Know why you believe what you believe. And know that this isn't based on myth. It's not based on uh, assumptions. But it's based on hardcore foundational truths, philosophical, rational logic, and the revelation, most importantly of all, of Jesus Christ himself. He is the king and he is the ultimate hope. And so I think that now we have an opportunity to finally be a New Testament church. We get to be a city set on a hill. We get to be that that lighthouse on the coast that in the midst of a storm shoots a beam that's so clear that it gives sanctuary by warning people where the rocks and the shoals are and guiding them to safe harbors. And today people now say it's time I finally find a safe harbor so I can get back to the point of what life is meant. And life is meant to be about love and joy and happiness and family. And you can't have that when you're out on the open sea and the storms are blowing, right? Right. You're trying to just, you know, batten down the hatches so you don't go under. You want a safe harbor. And there's nothing like waking up in a safe harbor when the sun rises and the sky's ablaze and Boy, that's a beautiful, wonderful place. And to sit there in a safe harbor when the sun is setting, it's gorgeous. And that is what we have the hope to do right now. And that's why I love the Salty Pastures is it's really helping people understand how to to intellectually find a safe harbor and bring deeper understanding to what Jesus Christ, King of King and Lord of Lords, actually practically means in everyday life. Absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing all these thoughts with us today. I'm really excited for our new series to start on Sunday. Um, Jesus is King. Uh, we're only 22 days till Christmas. So we're, we're building up to the big day, and we're just really excited. Um, it's just that time of year where everything just has a little bit more hope and yes. light to it. Even in the midst of a pandemic, Jesus <laughs> is still King, and he's still bringing that hope and light to our world and getting us excited for the season. So, Amen. All right. Hopefully you guys will join us on Sunday, either online or in person here at Foothills. And tune in next week for more episodes of The Salty Pastor. Blessings and Merry Christmas to all of you.